now we have the opportunity to come to the preaching of God's Word. We continue to spend time in the book of Genesis. We are into chapter 3 today. If you want to get your fingers in the very first few pages of your Bible here, Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be. And we have spent the last five weeks or so in this idyllic setting of a pre-fall creation. And I don't know about you, but to me it seems kind of like examining an alien landscape. We do not know, nor do we understand, nor have we experienced anything like this world that Adam and Eve knew. This joyful and sinless communion with God that they got to experience. As I've said before, it doesn't take long for us to realize that our world doesn't reflect that world. That's why I say it's like an alien landscape. There's so much wrong in the world around us. Sherry and I just returned a foster child, and she went to another foster home yesterday. And we see her go and go. We don't know where God's taking her from here. She's not going home to family. She's never had a family who's loved and cared for her. There's something wrong there. We take a look at world events, like Dick had just said, the wars raging everywhere, the church persecuted worldwide. Death and destruction, the likes of which most of us have never known. There's something wrong there. Our congregation has been racked by tragedy in the last year or so. And today, especially, we think of the loss of our dear sister Katrina and our pastor Jim and Deborah. There's something wrong there. How did this creation that God once called good and very good end up here? If you've been paying attention as I've walked through Genesis, the first couple chapters here, you will have noticed that I skipped two verses. In chapter 2, I skipped verses 16 and 17. And I did so intentionally because they fit well with what we're looking at today. It's the first commandment that we have that is quite so easily recognizable as a commandment. In chapter 1, we have that blessing that was given to Adam and Eve. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And while that is a commandment of sorts, it doesn't read like what we expect commandments to read like. 
But in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, we get that first commandment that feels like a commandment. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. One of the things that so clearly delineates this commandment from the blessing that precedes it is this introduction of a consequence. It is a simple if-then equation. If you jump into the water, you will get wet. If you drop that china plate, it will break. If you eat of this tree, you will die. It is not a complicated equation, and it bears no tampering. X equals Y, period. And yet, even in this first commandment, there's still this focus, and I don't want us to lose this focus. That commandment there, the first, you shall not, the focus is still upon the magnificent provision of the Lord. The focus is not, don't do this. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. The focus is still upon the provision that God has made. Here you go, have all of it, just don't touch that. Or at least don't eat of it. We'll get to that later. God placed Adam in the garden. God provided all of the trees of the garden to eat from and to live in and to shade him. But not that one. Do not eat of that tree. Probably one of the first questions we run into as we look here and go, well then why put the tree there in the first place? This past week on October 31st, we celebrated, no, not Halloween, but Reformation Day. It's the day that we commemorate Martin Luther posting his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Church in Germany. And Luther had this to say about that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Luther once called this tree Adam's church and altar and pulpit because here he was to yield to God the obedience he owed, give recognition to the word and will of God, give thanks to God and call upon God for aid against temptation. The love and worship that was expected of Adam was given meaning because Adam was more than just a senseless worship robot. He was gifted with reason and decision-making abilities by the Lord his God, and a decision was given him. Take everything that I have given you. Be fruitful and multiply. Enjoy it. But don't touch that, or don't eat from that tree. The tree provided that decision, eat or do not eat, and it provided the means for Adam of true and meaningful worship. And it is Adam's response to that opportunity with which we concern ourselves this morning. Genesis chapter 3, we'll be looking at the first 
eight verses if you want to read that with me. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is God's Word. And it has to be one of the more familiar passages of God's Word for believers and non-believers alike. How many, how many paintings exist throughout history of this interaction conveniently placed vegetation and all. This is one of the most commonly referenced pieces of Scripture. Why do we keep coming back to this story as, as a whole, as humanity? Why do we keep coming back here? Think about your parents. Now think about your grandparents great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents. It only takes a few generations before our own much more immediately fam immediate family starts to kind of fade out of our memories, and we don't have a whole lot of, oh yeah, I remember great-great-grandmother doing this. My children are blessed to still have one great-great-grandparent still alive. But how little we know about even just our immediate forebears. And yet the count of Adam and Eve some 400 or so generations ago is burned into our mind and into our hearts and into our species. thanks to the account in the book of Genesis which we've just read, keeping their tale alive, but also because of the reverberating repercussions that have stemmed from this story. Literally the entire course of human history goes on its way in this passage. what I want us today to recognize and to draw out is that there is so much riding on this passage that it becomes incredibly important for us and this passage and the next couple that we will look at, but 
it becomes so important for us to be more than just passingly familiar with it. For most of us, the first three chapters or so of Genesis, the last time we've spent much time in it was in Sunday school when we got the Adam and Eve lesson. And January 3rd or 4th when you start your read a Bible in a year thing and you get to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But we need to know especially the first 11 chapters in Genesis inside and out and this account in particular because everything hinges on this. We need to know what it says and be able to explain what it says because everything else depends on this. find it interesting looking through Genesis that there are certain things in certain passages that the Spirit determines, okay, I'm going to explain this fully and they're going to get this huge in-depth picture. I think of going back a chapter where it's talking about describing the garden and there's this river that goes here and it has gold and this river that goes here and it surrounds this land and you get the super in-depth. For those of you that are familiar, you know that I enjoy the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and one of the critiques that he gets is he spends 20 minutes talking about this rock and look how beautiful this rock is and you get all of this detail and you're like, I don't know where this detail is going, but I love it. But then there's other passages where you kind of put your hand up afterwards like, are we going to gloss over the fact that there was a talking snake? Where did the talking snake come from? Why is there a talking snake? Who is the talking snake? Don't worry about it. We're not dealing with that right now. Thankfully, we have elsewhere in Scripture to help us to understand. But here, we're simply told, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Where did this talking snake come from? Why is Eve not wondering why the snake is talking? Well, in Revelation 12, 9, we learn that that serpent is none other than Satan himself. In that passage we read, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, and he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So somewhere between Genesis 1.31, where God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Somewhere between there and Genesis 3.1, Things have kind of gone sideways. Because Satan, who we need to remember, all of us need to remember, remember he is a created being. He is a creation, and therefore when God said he looked at all that he had made and said it was very good, something happened between there and our passage today that things went sideways. Satan's failed rebellion against God happened. And interestingly, the, if you have a Reformation study Bible, you could see in the notes there's this question of whether the fall of Satan and the existence of evil, which by this account we can see predates the fall of man, 
Maybe this is why God charges Adam in Genesis 2.15 to keep or guard the garden. What is he keeping the garden from? Speculation, but interesting nonetheless. But speculation aside, this appears to be mankind's first interaction with evil. Satan, taking the form of a serpent, comes to Eve. And immediately the craftiness and wickedness of his schemes start to show through. Looking at the rest of what we've looked at, where in the order of creation do we see the direct command regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Immediately before the woman was created. God goes to Adam and says, this tree, you shall not eat of this tree. Adam was given this charge before Eve even existed. And Satan comes to the woman and says, what did God say? And we can see from her answer that Adam had, in some sense, done his due diligence in teaching Eve that which God had commanded him. Because when questioned by the serpent, Eve did know the danger of the fruit. But even here, we can see the cracks beginning to form in the way that humanity treats the word of God. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that... What Adam was told? Was Adam told, you shall eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, or eat the fruit of the trees of the garden? But that tree in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Back up to 2, 16, 17. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden. No, we shall eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden. For you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Where was that in the command? lest you die. Because you might not know you shall surely die. We aren't directly told in this passage, but it appears to me that Adam, in desiring to protect his wife, may have adjusted the instructions that had been given by God. And if it was not Adam teaching this, Eve added it by herself. We don't know. 
of the tree you shall not eat becomes you shall not eat, neither shall you touch. Any parent here understands the temptation to do this. If you touch the electrical outlets, lightning and fire will come out and you will die. If you grab that knife off the counter, you will cut off your arm. We know that the chances of death and dismemberment if they touch an outlet or grab a knife off the counter are fairly low. Do we handle electricity and knives on a daily basis? Absolutely. But in an attempt to avert, to avert these possible consequences, we expand the prohibition. Is there every chance that our kids would not, in fact, do permanent damage to themselves in these situations? Yes. The number of times I have turned around and seen one of our kids going for the only sharp knife in the dishwasher tells me that the chances of them dismembering themselves is fairly small, but that's not going to change the fact that if you touch a knife, your arm is going to come right off. I don't want them touching knives. At least not without direct supervision. It's easier to just catastrophize. Don't even touch them. Eve seems to either have been given this instruction or come up with it herself. Don't eat of the tree. Don't even touch the Don't look at the tree. Don't smell the tree. The tree does not exist. Just pretend it is over there. It doesn't exist. Don't eat. Don't touch. Nothing. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, the Lord commands Israel, do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Proverbs 45 and 6, we read, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The serpent knew what he was doing. In 1758, Benjamin Franklin made a quote that sticks with me. Half a truth is often a great lie. Half a truth is often a great lie. And that bears it out in the very first deception from the father of all lies. God most certainly did say they shall not eat from a tree in the garden, but not any tree. And that kind of lie has been propagated by our enemy throughout the entire rest of human history. That half-truth, that seems right but isn't quite right type truth. As I was looking into this half-truth stuff, I found um, a fairly recent book. A couple of years ago, Pastor Flip Michaels released a book called Five Half-Truths, Addressing the Most Common Misconceptions of Christianity five half-truths that he honed in on where the Bible was written by men. All religions are the same. God is love. Jesus is truly a man. Our good deeds matter. Each one of those is absolutely true. But there is way more to the story than those statements themselves would bear out. 
Bible is written by men, yes, under the influence of the Holy Spirit who made sure that it was written exactly as he wanted it written. All religions are the same. Yes, all religions are our attempt to reconcile the fact that we know that there is a God with our experience of the world. God is love, absolutely, but his love bears itself out in mercy and grace and justice and wrath all at the same time. Jesus is truly a man, but he is truly God. Our good deeds matter, yes, but only insofar as they are done in the worship of God and under the strength that God provides. Taken alone, these truths twisted to sinful ends, these half-truths have become the means by which so many people have fallen from the faith, and just so this potent cocktail of truth and falsehood is what was sold by our adversary to Eve all those generations ago. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no. He said, and cue the modified command, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that, it, that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now cue another half-truth and the first true contradiction of the Lord's commands, as well as the first questioning of God's good provision, which was the whole focus of that commandment given to Adam. God's provided all of these good things for you. Just don't touch that tree. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will know good and evil. God promised that in the command in chapter 1. Of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yes, you are going to know good and evil. But the focus is on God's good provision, not on the prohibition. And that's precisely what Satan attacks. God is holding out on you. He doesn't want you to have what he has. He doesn't want you to have the best. You'd be better off disobeying him and choosing your own way than the way he's commanded you. Why do what he has told you to do? Why can't you do what you want to do? And in this critical moment, deceived by these half-truths, these mixture, this cocktail of truth and falsehood, and lacking any kind of leadership from her husband, who was the one who actually received that command and received it directly from the Lord, whose job it would have been to say, when she said to the serpent, well, God said, don't eat, don't touch me. Adam, like, no, 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 no. But lacking any kind of leadership from Adam, Eve succumbed. The woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, and she took of the fruit and ate. And absolutely boggling our minds, she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Adam was there. Adam likely heard this whole exchange between the serpent and Eve. Maybe not, but even still, whether he heard it or not, the God of the universe said, don't eat from that tree. Directly, one-on-one, -on -one, to Adam, don't eat from that tree. And his wife comes to him, hands him this piece of fruit that he knows, he sees. It's not like he was like, oh, that's just some other fruit. He knew what fruit it was. And he probably listened to this whole interaction between Eve and the snake 
And he goes, okay. And in that moment, everything is turned on its head. Eve leads Adam. Mankind determines of that which God had forbidden, it is good. The delight and desire that this fruit inspires in Eve is, if you look at the original language, it is directly linguistically linked with the tenth of the Ten Commandments. All the little kids in Kids Rock that just went through the Ten Commandments last year will know this one. You shall not covet. That word for covet is desire and delight, and it is to be desired and to be wanted. Eve takes and eats, and Adam takes and eats, and the state of God's creation makes its great inversion pursuing the created instead of the creator, desiring themselves to be like God. And unsurprisingly, this is the exact same thing for which Satan was kicked out of heaven. I want to take over God's job. I could do a better job. So Adam comes, or Satan comes and propagates the exact same thing with Eve. You could be like God. And here the fruit that seemed as sweet as honey turned to ash in their mouths. The bitterness of those half-truths comes forward, and the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Their innocence, their purity, it flies from their hearts, and for the first time they feel exposed. Death begins its work. Instead of clinging to and running into the arms of the provider, the God that made everything for them and gave them the entire garden and say, you have all of this, take it and eat and be fruitful and multiply and be, have dominion over. They hide themselves in the very trees that God had given them. And they hide themselves from one another. And at least in their minds from God. In the very moment where Adam should have been diving on the grenade and protecting his wife and slaying the serpent and worshiping the God who provided all good things and declaring the truth as he had received it directly from God, Adam should have been, no! And in that very moment, Adam takes from Eve and eats. And now we have war. And now we have foster care. And now we have death. And now we have sadness and tears and pain and hard labor of the ground and thorns and sadness. And Eve was deceived. It's declared in the New Testament in passages like 1 Timothy 2.14 and 2 Corinthians 11.3. It was Eve that was deceived. And yet Adam is the one that receives the brunt of the guilt here. It is of Adam that Romans 5 speaks when it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. 
Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. At the beginning of our message this morning, I said that we have spent the last five weeks in this idyllic pre-fall setting, this alien landscape that we don't understand. We've never experienced this sinless and perfect world. But this separation and this shame, this failure and this consequence, this temptation and this sin, this we get. This is familiar. Now I know where I am. This is the world that we live in. And it all began with Adam. As he sinned, so we are all born in sin. And then we, by our own sinfulness, continue that sinful pattern. But as we read in Romans 5, as the fallen members of Adam's race, if we are in Christ, we can in some sense embrace and even boast in our helpless state. Not by succumbing to our powerlessness to defeat it. Not just throwing our hands up and be like, well, I can't do anything about it, so may as well just go. But throwing up our hands and calling upon the only one who can. The only one that has conquered sin and death. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 12 when he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Adam and Eve were in the perfect situation. They had all of the tools that they needed to remain steadfast and sinless. So don't for a second get up on your high horse and think you would have done better in their situation. But we look at their situation and go, they had everything they needed to face down sin and come away unsinful. And it can make us kind of despair and go, if they had no original sin and had never sinned before and they couldn't help themselves, what are we supposed to do? But I would not have us leave here with our hands thrown up. It is not hopeless. Because that same enemy that laid low our ancestors with cunning words and poisonous half-truths, 
He's defeated. His power and his sway over us is broken if we confess Christ. If we are in Jesus, we are no longer enslaved to his kingdom. Instead, we have been justified, declared righteous, and sanctified. We are being made righteous, not by our own power, not by our own steam, but by the power of God's Spirit now work within us. Our enemy still, that ancient serpent, still prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for those he may devour. He is even more dangerous because he knows that he is mortally wounded. His days are numbered. He knows that he is beaten. But he still spouts those half-truths, those lies that seem so sweet at first glance. Adam and Eve were swayed. They lost their focus which should have been on the incredible provision of the Lord their God. We must not be. I think it's great that today is the day of prayer for the persecuted church because we have brothers and sisters who very clearly have not been swayed from God's provision even in spite of horrendous situations. One of the greatest proofs I've ever seen of the gospel is taking a look at all of the guys who supposedly made up the Christian faith, all of these disciples of Christ, and they were all willing to be murdered and tortured horribly to keep up a lie. They were willing to be crucified upside down just to keep the, keep the joke going. They were willing to be stoned and speared and shipwrecked and marooned and just because something that a group of 12 guys came up with to try and keep going. In this book, we have the true word of God. In this book, we have the details of God's relationship with mankind and his reconciliation between God and man. In the Old Testament, we have the proof that man can't do it on our own. And from Adam straight through to today, no one has done it on our own except for one Lord Jesus. Our God has provided for us richly. He has given us his word. He has placed us in Canada. He has given us brothers and sisters who would desire to build us up and strengthen and encourage us. He has let us hear the gospel. He has given that gospel roots that we would claim faith in Christ. God has provided for us so, so well. Do not be swayed by these greasy half-truths that seem like they present some sort of joy that God is holding out on us. I know God told you not to do that, but if you just fudge the number a little bit there on your taxes, you could pay for a new quad. 
God's holding out on you. I know God said that marriage is between one man and one woman for life, and that's where sex belongs, but she's real pretty. I know that God said, but God's holding out on you. Read this book. Know this book. And you will know that God has held out nothing, not even his own son from you. That is what we have to look forward to. And that future and that hope that he promises in here awaits the people that would hold to the truth in here and not be waylaid by these half-truths. And we are going to stumble and we are going to fall and that is why we have to beg upon the righteousness of Christ. We cannot try to walk Adam's path alone. We cannot do it on our own. We must walk in the light of what our Savior has done on our behalf, succeeding where the first Adam did not. We must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then everything else that we need will be provided to us, and we have an eternal hope and an eternal future to look forward to. God is not holding out on you. God has provided for you in every way. The worship team comes to lead us in a closing song. Would you join with me in prayer? O oh Lord, our God, you have not held anything back as you have saved your people. You have revealed yourself to us. You have sent your own Son to die on our behalf. Lord, we cannot even for a moment begin to name or number all of the ways in which you have cared for and provided for us. And yet we are so tempted in the moment when we are faced with these trials and these temptations and these half-truths from our enemy to go, God doesn't want the best for me. Lord, may we see that your ways are indeed higher than our ways and your thoughts are indeed higher than our thoughts and may we trust that your plan is better than our plan what you have provided is far better than how we could provide for ourselves may we look at and desire not what this world has for us not that which you have forbidden but may we desire to bring you all honor and glory and praise as we were created to do May we carry forth your image into this creation and may we bless the name of the one who has provided for and cared for and created and sustained each one of us. And as we face the trials of this life, the wounds that this world would throw at us, the sadness and the grief and the sickness and the pain, Lord, may we remember what you have provided. May we remember that if we hold fast unto our confession of faith, 
that it only gets better in death. That it only gets better once we see you face to face. And may we trust that you are good even when we can't see how. Lord, we thank you. We bless you. And we ask that you would be glorified as we go from this place this morning. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us? By the grace of God, when the roll is called up yonder, all of those whose names are found in the Lamb's Book of Life, they will be there. And we have that great hope and that future to look forward to if we have confessed Christ and we have believed in him. So we go forth with the blessing of the psalmist this morning. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. We will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told.
So church, as you go from this place this morning, go and glorify God that he has provided abundantly and that he is not holding out from his people. Praise him that the sin of Adam is no longer the defining mark of our race, but that for those who are found in Christ, we can proclaim the death of Christ until he comes again. God bless you. You're dismissed, and Lord willing, we will see you downstairs for Sunday school.